Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risks. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. What Could Go Right? A series of open-ended conversations of never-ending topics that has continued applicability, especially for our conversation today about the future of work, about what is going to happen to the workplace, not just the office, but the manufacturing floor, not just the manufacturing floor, but the grocery, the meatpacking plant, the white-collar job, the blue-collar job. And as you'll hear in this conversation, I think the pink-collar job. So. The primary question for all of us now is after a year and a half plus going on two years of a world that everyone thought was going to change forever and was going to change the workplace forever because of the pandemic, is that going to be the case? Was it the case? Have the reports of the death of the workplace been vastly overstated? Was that ever even true during the heart of the pandemic? And today we're going to talk with to women, to scholars and practitioners of all these questions for years before the pandemic and presumably for years after about what the nature of the workplace is gonna be. Hopefully that this will be a moment of constructive change and constructive fissure of what was to what will be. I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network. We'll be asking these questions and having that conversation along with Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of the Progress Network. And we're going to be talking to Zainab Tan today and Joan C. Williams um, together. I think they're really kind of the dream team to be talking about work. So Zainab Tan, she's a professor of practice in the operations management group at MIT Sloan. She's the president of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, as well as a book by that same name, Good Jobs. Her research focuses on how organizations can design and manage their operations in a way that is satisfactory to employees, customers, and investors simultaneously. Another way to put that is creating quality jobs for employees, making sure that you know consumers are having a great experience and that the company is still making money. Um, and Joan C. Williams is a professor and director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California's Hastings College of the Law. She's also one of the most cited scholars on gender and racial bias in the workplace. So I'm really excited to talk to these uh, two people. And so am I. I mean, we're always excited to talk to whomever we're talking to. But today, we're really excited to talk to the actual people that we are talking to. And with that, we're going to begin this conversation. So it is such a pleasure today to be talking to two members of our Progress Network, Zainab and Joan. 
we're having this conversation during the summer. So there's a big anticipation about, in the United States at least, Europe, probably the rest of the world, who knows, of some semblance of work uh, either returning to what was pre-March of 2020 or evolving to what will be post-September of 2021. So it's a really opportune time to talk about kind of what the world of the workplace is with two people who have been thinking about the evolving reality of work well before the pandemic, because work's always evolving, uh, and I'm sure have spent a considerable portion during the pandemic thinking, one, I told you so, and two, what's it all going to look like? So that's like the really broad question. And uh, just as a kind of a progress network, interesting note, which has been true beforehand, Emma Varbalukas is sitting somewhere in, in Greece, uh, in an undisclosed location, somewhere <laughs> in the Aegean. I'm in the anarchist neighborhood, actually, if anyone's okay. curious. Oh, good. That's good to know. But at least they haven't cut off the internet. They're still, they're still protesting. Not yet. <laughs> uh, and we have someone else for a while who is working from Berlin. We have someone else who's working from Thailand. I believe now we have someone who's working from London. So at least in terms of, you know, the brave new world of everywhere, no one is anywhere and everyone is everywhere. We seem to be at least living a little bit of that. So it'd be great to hear both of you just in the biggest picture sense ruminate given that you've been ruminating anyway about like what's going to happen here what is is this a total change are are reports of the death of the workplace just a kind of a pandemic hyperbole is everything going to be different is everything going to be better is nothing going to change john you want to go first okay well the past 18 months have been truly surreal from my point of view um, first of all, I've been talking about the impact of caregiving responsibilities on the workplace for well, 30, 30 years. And all of a sudden, everybody else discovered that caregiving responsibilities have an impact on the workplace. Thank you. That's amazing. Um, so that was a very positive thing. Also, I was um, part of the, uh, I'm part of the generation that invented flexible work arrangements. And um, people told us they were impossible. No matter how much we built the business case, it's like it was impossible. And it eventually became really clear that this was an issue of a failure of imagination and threatened identities of people who had just built their identity around being kind of the ideal worker. And then all of a sudden, having told us that remote work was impossible for 30 years, they, everybody did it in three weeks. I'm going, thank you. <laughs> it wasn't impossible. So those are very, very positive. Uh, those are, those are uh, two positive. And then the third positive, which is in many ways the most exciting, is that um, remote work has, has typically been the province of the privileged. But all of a sudden, in the past 18 months, we've seen the democratization of remote work. But what is really concerning me now is that we run hotlines for people who are having problems, and that in the transition now to hybrid work, I'm afraid we're losing that democratized access to workplace flexibility. What, what is it, just really quickly, John, about the hybrid workplace that is uh, making you fear that we're losing that um, democratization? 
it's that what we hear through our hotlines, and of course we hear when things go wrong. So I imagine there are a lot of things going right as well. I mean, nine out of 10 employers say that then when they, re they return to work, it's going to be in a hybrid workplace. So that sounds awesome. But what we hear is that it's a hybrid workplace for the likes of me, but it's not a hybrid workplace for uh, people in more modest jobs and that they are being ordered back to full-time work, often extremely short notice, in a context where one out of nine childcare centers have gone out of business. It's just a mess. Yeah, and, in, and if I can just uh, continue from where John left off in terms of modest jobs, because there are almost two economies in our country, right? One is where those of us who are privileged enough to work from home, where remote work is possible, and um, we kept our jobs during the pandemic and we will continue working after the pandemic. And then those other workers who are either called essential workers, so they have to be on site to be able to work. I'm talking about meat packers, I'm talking about caregivers, I'm talking about retail store employees, I'm talking about restaurant workers. And this is a significant chunk of the economy. In fact, um, last year, 46 and a half million people in this country worked in occupations where the median wage was less than $15 an hour. And, you know, while I'm not great at forecasting, Zachary, because all forecasts are wrong, so I don't know what the, what the future of work will be like, but I do hope that this pandemic also created awareness around these essential workers and the fact that they might be called essential, but you wouldn't know that from their wages or their working conditions or their schedules. So I hope that this awareness will accelerate improvement of working conditions for uh, workers who are not lucky enough to be you know, working remotely and even paid decent wages to put the roof over their heads. I mean, this is part of the whole, you know, there's a, a reality where many people are now saying, oh, come the fall, everybody's going to go back to work. But then there are these tens of millions of people who are saying that we never left work because of what you just said. I mean, when New York City shut down a year ago, and I'm just using this illustrially because I happen to live here, but it could be multiple metropolises, it, it meant that a million people were operating the subways and the buses and making sure there were supermarkets and food delivery and essential services were, were physically had to go to work because those things could not be done like this on, on Zoom or, or remotely. And, you know, they're saying our, our life, you know, just became more stressful. It didn't change in any meaningful way and certainly not for the better. I mean, is there going to be any change in this, Joan, with certainly the Biden administration is proposing probably the most ambitious extension of um, child care and home care, federally subsidized home care, child care, in order to address some of the issues that have become so acute whether that passes or in what form, I guess, is. Yeah, I, I think there's two words there. Joe Manchin, you know, proposed is the key word there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Zainab's um, point is so important because one of the things that we have really lacked as a culture for um, a few decades now is a culture that talks about the dignity of work. I talked about them as modest jobs. One, one of the points I think that we probably both agree on is that there's no such thing as an unskilled job. I mean, if I tried to be a hotel housekeeper, I would be a wreck. 
um, uh, those, I, I know what those people do. They do a lot of hard work and it's a lot of heavy work and it's a lot of emotion work. So this, this language of essential workers is so important and I hope we don't lose it because it um, is a language that communicates that every job is an important job. It's a skilled job. It's a job that should give dignity. And I think that's another thing that I hope we don't lose. But I think what, what Zainab and I were talking about is you can kind of, for this purpose, there's a tripartite economy of the the likes of the likes of us who can work in, who are transitioning to anywhere jobs. Um, and then there are these on-site jobs that worked throughout the pandemic, um, as Zainab said, in extremely exploitative conditions. But then there's the third group that I'm talking about who also continued to work through the pandemic. They worked from home um, and they have uh, uh, what are con commonly considered to be lower level white collar jobs. And we hear from a lot of those people who have done their work very successfully for over a year on a re remote basis, but they're being ordered um, back to full-time on-site work in a way that is, um, it, I hear that HR, our HR people are calling it the big quit. That's what's happening right now. And there's also a racial dimension to this that is often overlooked because uh, if you look at the recent surveys, people of color are much less likely to be enthusiastic about going back to on-site work, partly because they have uh, more fragile childcare. They often rely on family members for childcare. We know that's a problem with COVID. Um, and because frankly, they, uh, as a friend of mine said, you know, I am just so glad it's so much easier for me to work at home because I, I just, don't have to deal with those white people all the time and the microaggressions. And so that is also an un, often unnoted racial dimension of remote work. So I want to push back for a second, actually ask Emma a question and, and Zainab as well. It is certainly true that we don't uh, value what, what used to be called trade jobs and certainly jobs that a country like Germany or you know, some, some countries that, that, that recognize the value of all work and therefore recognize the need to sanctify all jobs that need doing. Uh, but there's also a problem personally. I mean, a lot of people come to the United States if they're from an immigrant family. Emma, if you'd said to your parents at one point, you know what, I'm not gonna go to college. I'm just gonna do a trade job of some form or another. Would that have been met with, that's just great? Meaning, to Joan's point, yes, we, we do not value those collectively, but I'm not sure that we also particularly value those individually. Well, to answer the question, my father probably would have fallen over and died. Um, and I don't even mean that in a flippant way. I just mean that that would have meant that all of the work that he had put in in Greece to come to the U.S. and then the work that he put in the in the U.S. would have been for naught. Um, and of course, I'm like a lot of immigrants' children in that respect. So, yeah, and and exactly, I, I want to add one thing about the um, dignity of work and how we think about jobs. In in this country, from the beginning, we we haven't valued those jobs that since 1917 has been called unskilled, even though we all know they're not unskilled. In fact, we just wrote a note about where did this term unskilled come from? Like, why do we why do we call some jobs unskilled jobs? Thank you. 
And here is what we find. The reason that jobs were categorized was because of class. So people were already categorized into classes. Why not classify jobs? And when you look at what jobs were called unskilled in 1917, it was farm work, manufacturing work, service work, and other work. And when you look at who did this work, disproportionately black immigrants, and my, you know, people from our parts of the world sometimes, um, and and women. I mean, and it has it was like that in 1917, and it is like that now. Not much has changed in what jobs we value in this country, who do those jobs, and how much they're paid. Joan, I wanted to come back to something that you said about the big quit um, and just share a, a quick story about a friend of mine, um, her company, who could uh, really use the help of, of both of you, to be honest. Her company did exactly what you said, Joan. Um, they had all they had told all of their workers that they were going to come back to the office in September. And then suddenly they changed course and they said, actually, we're going to go back in July. And they gave them about a week's notice that they were going to come back into the office. This particular friend, you know, she is underpaid for her experience in the industry, and she had been pushing for a raise for about six months. It had been accepted. Um, it was supposed to go through, but it just hadn't been going through. So when they told everybody that, um, you know, you have to come back to the office, she wrote an email to her manager and said, I'm not coming back until the raise comes through. And like magic, it came through two days later. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, okay, she just because she's a headstrong person and she's lucky to be in this Zoom class where maybe she, she has the financial stability to say, you know what, I'm not doing this? Um, or is there something here about like there, there is a little bit of leverage that this transition, this coming back into the office thing provides for workers, not only in the Zoom class, but also uh, you know, going down to lower wage jobs? Uh, unfortunately, I see the other side. I see the the side of people desperately needing to continue um, remote work or unable to handle an abrupt transition and then um, that being a, a source of further vulnerability in the workplace. I don't know, Zainab, what you've been seeing. Certainly. And, and, and somehow we expect workers to immediately find childcare, immediately arrange their lives and go back to work just because it is an option now. And um, I, fr from the worker's angle, I see what you're seeing, Joan, as well. So your friend's story, Emma, is probably an exception versus the norm, I wish it were. And I wish that more companies would be raising wages right now, um, it, given the shortage of workers, will be improving the working conditions, given that people just don't wanna work for the prices or the conditions that they're exposed to. But we don't see it happening quickly enough, um, perhaps partly because these are irreversible investments that they have to make. One thing I, I would love to ask Zainab if I could, um, the, the sh shortage of service workers um, who are very low paid, do you think that that's going to, to result in a rise in their wages on a permanent basis or not? That's a totally fascinating of like, wow, the market's working, who knew? Yeah, we, we are working with some companies right now who have raised wages and they have, for example, committed to $2 more increase uh, throughout the summer. They're seeing positive financial results along with some other changes that they're making. 
And yet the changes are still seen as temporary. And I'm thinking, why on earth would you go back when you see that this is actually profitable and you're attracting more, you know, more, more people and, and they are productive. And I, I hope they will stay permanent, John, but I don't know yet. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to predict again what, uh, what will be in, 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 in place and, and hopefully we'll see a federal minimum wage increase as well that will encourage more companies to raise their wages. I have only two words. <laughs> Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin. <laughs> the government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Ever Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Please, 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 please sit down. Let me tell you something. My sole measure of economic success is how working families are doing whether they have jobs that deliver dignity. That means we have to focus on wages like we used to. When it comes to the economy we're building, rising wages aren't a bug, they're a feature. That was President Joe Biden delivering his blue-collar blueprint for America in Cleveland, Ohio, on May 17th, 2021. Although it, it is true that since the beginning of the pandemic, it is the first, and you, you can look on the White House for the BEA's website, it is the first measured substantial wage growth in the past, I don't know, 20 years, 15 years, something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, wage growth had essentially been going at about the, the rate of inflation from the early 2000s. You can debate what it was in the late 90s. There's some, you know, there's some funky data out there. But certainly the past year, you saw some wage growth jumping as much as 8% month over month. There's been some continued wage growth this year. I think the question is whether it will continue, um, given that it's it's mostly a market response mm-hmm. to a sudden surge of intense demand and not enough people, not enough bodies can be sort of put in motion as quickly as, as people can want stuff. Ironically, it's a market response to lack of childcare. <laughs> Um, because that's one of the main reasons I, th- I think, although I've looked for num, uh, I, I haven't looked for numbers on this. I don't know whether it exists. I, I, I took a vacation in like, um, rural Washington and Oregon and, and literally people, there's so much anger out there among Trump voters, 
at the lack of ability to find to find any workers to work and blaming of the Democrats and the three hundred dollars supplement um, to unemployment. And so, I mean, somebody really needs to do a study and disaggregate the lack of childcare from the incentive of the three hundred dollars because it's really killing Democrats in rural areas. Um, but the other thing I wanted to pick up on something that Zainab said is that we um, we did, as people may know, uh, a study where we sh- uh, with the gap, where we shifted a whole a bunch of workers to more stable schedules, and then measured the results, and um, we found similar to what you found, Zainab, when with these increasing wages, gaps, uh, the the gap stores sales increased sharply, and so did labor productivity. And we thought, oh, well, this is a finding that's going to walk out the door. (laughs) And it walked out the door, but into a bit of a black hole, um, because even though uh, it it just, it makes you realize that capitalism is not as simple as we think. Um, Capitalism also involves people going to work every day and enacting cherished identities, and um, uh, enacting sort of um, class truths. And one of the class truths that they enact is that if they don't control labor costs, they will be punished um, either within their own company or if not within their own company, then um, by the financial establishment. And so the fact that you can earn more money treating workers better does not mean that workers get treated better, which is something that I feel naive, but I didn't understand before that study. I didn't understand that before this moment. And in fact, I was going to, Zainab, I was going to ask that your own question back to you, which was, if it's been shown that given giving workers better quality jobs, paying them more, more stable schedules, like Joe mentioned, is profitable, why on earth aren't companies doing it? So, so Joe provided some answers here. And Um, Do you have any other thoughts about that? Yes, I have so many examples now because, I mean, after I published my first book, The Good Job Strategy, I have started getting requests from CEOs of large public companies. I mean, even the largest in the world (laughs) and and, and lots of other ones too saying, we want to do this in our organization too. Yet, even when we work with some companies and showed the financial case, very few of them ended up making changes. And, and, and one of the reasons is that bad jobs are also profitable. And, you know, we, t- we talk about um, humans having needs, CEOs who go to companies and stay there for five to seven years. As you know, you know, CEOs' tenures has been getting shorter and shorter over time. They also care about their own reputation, their sense of achievement, and 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 they, 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 their own identity, and they want to win. And they think that in that short period, there are much easier ways to win than invest in my people and invest in my operations. Because what we have found, and in, in the case of GAP study, for example, for GAP to offer more stable schedules, they also need to change their supply chain. They need to change their promotions. They need to change lots of things about the company. So it's a system change that's required. And leaders look at this and say, 
do I want to make the system change during the five to seven years I'm here? Or do I go for some other things that are easier and faster? And by the way, my investors are asking about those things. I am being um, acknowledged for, and even there are tax incentives for those things. For example, if you invest in technologies, there's a tax incentive. If you invest in people, there is none. Investors in the retail space, for example, are not asking you about, you know, how much do you pay your employees? What's the pay distribution? What's your employee turnover? Are you really pursuing operational excellence? They ask you questions like, how are you going to compete against Amazon? Are you doing this digital transformation? And it's all about the cool things that everybody is doing versus focusing on the customer, re-operating a good business. And so... In some ways, like it's hard to blame these CEOs who are in these positions because the system almost is against them. And by the way, their customers, you know, they don't necessarily choose them based on how well they treat their employees, uh, right? And 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 they can pay as little as they can. So I think there there are a bunch of forces, but the biggest reason, Emma, is because they don't have to. And and I think the other thing you said, Zainab, which is so important, which is true in the context of scheduling, it involves an entire system change, a change to marketing, a change to supply chain, um, uh, and um, and even a change to finance. And and it's hard. That kind of organizational change is difficult. Um, it, the same thing is going on with um, diversity and inclusion. Uh, people say there, I mean, there's a lot of what I call woke washing going on. Like we care about racial diversity. Awesome. Um, and, and that's kind of, you know, as I say, if you're going to, uh, create an inclusive company, it's not one sincere conversation. That is not an organizational change strategy because in order to have an effective DEI strategy, you have to root out how bias is playing out in hiring in performance evaluations, in meetings, in assignments, it's a systems change. And the only thing that's available in the DEI context is a series of 1% solutions that where you gradually tweak your systems and becomes additive over time. That takes time, that takes energy, that takes energy. It's a very intellectual job. And the point you've made about CEOs is so apt in the diversity context as well. So uh, for those who are not versed in, in this world, can you spell out what DEI means? Oh, sorry, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if we're going to talk about system change question, and this is maybe a, li a little beyond the, the kind of kith and kin of some of where you both spend most of your professional time, but there is an immense drive, certainly in the United States, toward higher education and, and degrees and credentializing as a entry into job level X versus job level Y. Circling back to the beginning of our conversation about not systemically honoring the whole variety, the whole panoply of necessary and needed jobs, there is a, there is a tension between the incredible push to get a college degree and the fact that there are many skilled jobs whose skills shouldn't require certainly a four-year degree, uh, may not even be well-suited to the way community colleges are currently set up. You would have to really rethink the credentializing. And I, I can think one of the only countries in the world that does this particularly well is Germany. Uh, there are probably others that you both know of better than, than we do. But like, how do you even begin to start that when even saying that in the American context can seem 
in its own way, very uh, kind of disrespectfully elitist. Like, oh, no, 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 you, you all don't need to get college degrees. This is something I talked a lot about in my book, White Working Class. Um, there, uh, one of the statistics I got for that book was that two-thirds of Americans are not college graduates. And when I began saying that in 2017, people literally did not believe me. <laughs> They're like, you must, it must be wrong. I was like, no, it's not wrong. It is just a number. Two-thirds of Americans are not called. And people would, my circle wouldn't believe it. Because going back to what Emma said, within the professional managerial elite, we have um, sacralized and eroticized a college degree to such an extent that is literally unthinkable, literally unthinkable. My father would die. Um, <laughs> I'm going to use sacralized and eroticized, by the way, for multiple things after this conversation. Just. <laughs> I would like to say that I, I had to get into my 30s for my father to stop saying, why don't you go to business school? So <laughs> go on, John. <laughs> Isn't age beautiful, Emma? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> age is freedom. <laughs> but the, I mean, there, there was a, a real cultural shift. If you look at the WPA murals in the Works Project uh, Administration murals in the 1930s, they um, it looked just look at your local post office. They romanticized, you know, it was just, there was race, class, and gender, but they romanticized blue collar guys, white guys. Um, but at least it was a class leveling, there was a dignity to that kind of work. And then, starting in the 70s, I have to say, with my generation of former hippies, um, <clears throat> there was a real shift to um, college education for everybody, and that was seen as the progressive thing. And it's um, it, it often you said it's elitist to say well not everyone is is college material if you say it like that it is elitist, but to say some people ha have less interest in college than they do in a in a boring stick that's just not their thing, they are not part of this culture where this is sacralized, they want a good solid job that will enable them to support their family. They are really good at working with their hands or um, working with people. And that's what they want. And so this idealism of call everybody should be cool and smart and educated like me, that is elitist. That's the elitism. Not respecting, as Zainet pointed out, that our jobs are, that our jobs are a little pimple on the economy. They are not most people's jobs and they are not the only important jobs. So how do you change that though? I mean, it, cause most, I mean, there is, there are some moves and we don't have to make this a discussion about education, but it is a discussion about credentializing for jobs. There are definitely moves, which some of the tech companies have done, you know, one of Google's quieter endeavors is to try to brand itself as a Google license, right. For a variety of professions that wouldn't require a degree. Uh, there is some move towards structuring local educational initiatives, one of which uh, one of the members of the Progress Network, Michael Crow, has done incredibly well with ASU, you know, thinking about what is what does a community need in terms of skills and credentials? Not What a visionary he is. But I'm not sure that these things are are anything other than, you know, isolated plots on a graph. I mean, Zainab, if you'd said if you'd say to some companies you should do a better job um, in how you think about hiring, not in terms of credentials, but in terms of skills, would they 
Companies also don't like spending money on training, right? That's another well, thing. Well, the, the, the type of companies that I work with, uh, Zachary, there are no college uh, requirements. I mean, I work with low-wage employers. So they're not looking for college uh, graduates. The, the good ones are looking for specific attributes um, that enable people to thrive in their settings. And I wish all companies did that, right? Look at the attributes that matter most in your setting and select based on att those attributes, regardless of where you went to college and what degree you had. And do you see change in that area? Change in the sense of um, more willingness to train? Because like, that's also been a huge issue in, in many employers. Like they want, they want to hire people who can, they don't have to spend any time and energy training. That is Again, I, I, I operate in environments, and this, this applies to 32% of the workforce in the United States, where you can find employee turnover as high as 100%. So when you operate in those environments, you know, there was a recent article about the Amazon fulfillment centers, right? Those are like, that's the work in our, in our current um, work of work, and 150% employee turnover. The thing is, in our society, we tend to value those types of companies. We tend to value, you know, innovation, super fast growth, or running the business really well, focusing on operations, focusing on people, hiring the right people, training them well, you know, involving them in continuous improvement. I mean, one of the companies that I'm an operations management professor, so we all study is Toyota. And Toyota has been an outlier in the auto industry in terms of how successful they have been for decades. Um, but Toyota's practices, which are very well known now, are not adapted in so many other settings because that's not the stuff we value in our society anymore. The stuff that we value, again, is, you know, grow fast at all costs, break rules, our management doesn't matter. So those are the things that become the cool things of our era. And I hope that with this pandemic, that will begin to change too. I hope that with the pandemic, we're realizing it's important to be able to make things well and make things here because we tend to need them <laughs> during crises. And, and we will see if that happens, but I do hope that manufacturing strengthens after, um, after this pandemic. I hope that we start valuing these frontline jobs a lot more after the pandemic. We'll see, again, no forecasts, but these are just hopes. I was really heartened during the pandemic. I don't know if anyone else noticed when Marco Rubio wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called The Resilient Economy, basically saying these global supply chains looked, looked pretty new, nifty, and keen, but now we see the downside of global supply chains. And to um, echo what Zainab said, uh, are, you know, are we... <laughs> Do you regret that we don't produce computer chips in the U.S. anymore? I kind of regret it now, right? Anyone trying to buy a car regrets it. Anyone trying to buy a toaster regrets it. I guess I would push back on the, the idea that there should be more manufacturing per se. One, manufacturing jobs in the United States never, even at the height of when the United States had 50% of global industrial capacity, was always below 20%. Um, and, you know, now it's in the 10 to 11 to 12 percent range. Almost every country in the world, mostly because of technology and robotics, has fewer and fewer people engaged in manufacturing. So in terms of manufacturing as a as an employment force, that's decreasing everywhere globally, including China. And I'm not sure that that's the pathway we would want 
going forward, given those factors? Um, Certainly, uh, manufacturing, I, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, I think about Germany. Um, in order to have manufacturing be a healthy part of your economy in a highly industrialized upper middle class nation, you need to be making the best damn scissors in the world. Um, one, why does Germany produce the best damn scissors in the world? In my view, because they saw in the 1930s what happens when um, people with modest jobs see their futures go up in smoke. Gee, does this remind you of the United States where 90%, over 90% of people used to do better than their parents, but now only 50% do? Germany learned something about the relationship between good, honored, blue-collar jobs and fascism. And I hope we don't learn the same lesson. Yeah, and, and I was thinking about, about manufacturing maybe less in terms of the number of jobs, but in terms of what we value in our country, right? What we value in terms of, we value work, we value making things and making things well. We value producing good services and creating a great customer experience because in order to, to do these well, we may not need as many people, uh, but we need good people and we need strong operations. And, and that provides us resiliency on the national side, but it also gets to that dignity of each job versus, you know, the number of jobs. And, and in fact, when you look at, you know, Zachary, MIT just created a new report because we were very worried about um, the future of work and, and whether the robots were going to, you know, steal all the jobs. And MIT initiated a three-year study. And the outcome of the study is that we don't need to worry about the number of jobs for a long time. What we do need to worry about is the quality of jobs. But I think also the focus on manufacturing, which I just uh, I just participated in, is a focus on the dignity of men. Um, personally, I think the dignity of men is really important politically because, um, as I always say, uh, there's nothing there's nothing so dangerous as a man without a future, um, and we see that. We see that in the United States today. We saw it in Germany in the 30s. Um, but I also think that this focus on manufacturing jobs is part of the focus on male jobs. And as Zainab is pointing out, there are a lot of really important jobs that are, quote, unskilled jobs that women do. And those are considered not only unskilled, but like super unskilled. Um, those are important jobs. And I go back to retail, where for decades in retail, there has been uh, a, a literature that shows the, the problem of execution in retail. Um, and the problem ex execution in retail is partly that you have tiny bits of people's time. So they don't know where the stock is and they don't care where the stock is. The problem of execution in, in retail is the problem of uh, of uh, of flawed operations. That was my doctoral dissertation. So thank you for bringing that out. I love that. <laughs> thank you. It just makes me think immediately of uh, home health aides that have such tough jobs and are paid so poorly and are so necessary for so many people. And it does boggle the mind as to why that is, why they have such poor working conditions. Race and gender. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the two word answer. <laughs> Emma, we work with, um, I started a nonprofit called Good Jobs Institute a couple of years ago, and we work with low-wage employers, and our mission is to help companies thrive by creating good jobs. We work with three different senior living organizations, 
And shadowing workers in those organizations were probably the most depressing days in my life during the last couple of years. Um, they have extremely hard work physically, mentally, psychologically, and they do care. I mean, they care so much about their residents. They care so much. But when they're understaffed, that a resident has to wait 45 minutes to go to the bathroom or when they fall asleep on the work because they have to have two jobs and they have no time to sleep. It's just heartbreaking. And it was amazing to me how, how, how poorly these workers were paid. And, and when we presented to the company the, the data on what percentage of their caregivers make below the living wage, they were shocked. They had unbelievably had no idea. And this is something that I've been seeing more and more in, in, in my work too. When we present to company leaders, like this is how much your workers are, are making and compared to the living wage, they all know what the starting wage rate is, but hours is a big issue. They don't know how many hours their workers are working. So when they see their monthly and how, how far they are behind, they're just extremely surprised. And, and um, morally, they do want to do something about it. That's exciting to hear. Yes, but, and it will be so awesome, Joan, if investors like BlackRock, they, you know, in, in the ESG efforts, you know, there's so much on ESG now, that's such a huge world. If on the S part of the ESG, they ask for these metrics that really matter, instead of looking at how many women you have on the board or how many Black people you have on the board, if you said, give us your pay distribution, and let us see what percentage of your workers make less than $25,000, less than $30,000 a year. Give us your turnover data. Give us your internal promotion data by race and gender. Let me see if you're promoting from within and if you're promoting um, equally by, by race and gender. So if, if they ask for the right data, we could start seeing some shifts. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about the future that the world is kind of going in that direction. That's funny, Zainab. You and I are definitely daughters of a different mother. Um, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying in the DEI context, yeah, the diversity and inclusion context. It's all about correct collecting the right metrics. Yeah. Once you, I mean, if you're serious about any problem, you identify the correct metrics mm -hmm. and you keep on trying strategies until you nail your goals. This has not been done in diversity and inclusion. And you're right. This is so exciting to think that you're actually identifying the, the I mean, the met, this is not rocket science. It's not even hard. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. 
And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. You know, I, I, I just I, I want a future in which only 50 percent of workers are working in offices and the other 50 percent we could rotate are working from home. Can you imagine a society where people have two more hours of a day that they don't have to commute back and forth? Can you imagine the 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 problems of traffic in all the major cities of the world if we had 30 or percent, uh, 30 to 40 percent less traffic. And what will that do in terms of uh, uh, the environmental issues? So these are blessings. We should focus on these blessings, how we have evolved and how we transformed ourselves because of COVID. So this horrible, horrible societal impact of COVID and the impact of health is creating some big, giant macro changes, which are, in my mind, blessings for society. That was BlackRock CEO Larry Fink talking with Bloomberg Markets and Finance in October of 2020. There are some positive signs in terms of the business roundtable and people like Larry Fink at BlackRock talking this talk. I mean, there's a, there's an interesting debate about, Joan, you earlier referred to woke washing, and there's obviously these debates about greenwashing. There's also the reality of once companies articulate a set of morals and ethos, uh, that can box them in in a very constructive way to then either live up to the words that they are preaching or to face significant public pressure and their own employee pressure to live up to the words that they are speaking. Uh, you know, yes, one can also say. Unfortunately, there's what sociologists call symbolic compliance, which is uh, is like you can you can chit and chat and chit and chat, and that's all about all there's to it. Yeah, and and if you make this more about winning strategically, competitively versus being nice, I think then we can make progress, right? If you say, look at Costco, they pay their workers twenty five dollars an hour compared to $13 an hour in retail. And they are winning with their customers. Their sales growth is so much faster. Their members are staying with them. Oh, and by the way, they produce, they provide the lowest prices and they promote on, almost 100% from within. Wow. And then compare that to others. I think that type of benchmarking and framing it, framing it in the context of winning in the market versus being nice is 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 a, is a big difference. I I remember having a conversation with the last year. I reached out to this one CEO who had just retired, and he was the CEO of a large public company. And I reached out to him because I said, you know, people are hurting. Um, this this was a couple of weeks after George Floyd protests, and I said people are hurting, and retail is a huge industry. We must do something. And his point to me was. 
well, if I start being doing these things, my investors will say, I don't care what Larry Fink says. I don't care what BlackRock says. I'm not investing in you. Like that's not that's not the path that I want you to take. But it's because he wasn't seeing it in terms of winning competitively, right? He was seeing it as this is a this is a nice moral thing to do. Um, so so I think we have to frame things not just on the moral side but on the competitive side and justify it financially. I agree with you, and yet what I have seen first in the work life context and then in the diversity and inclusion context is really elegant um, and also in the you know the scheduling context really elegant and rigorous demonstration that people can earn more money and yet they don't do it so i think you're right that's the language we have to be using but we also have to be asking why they don't do it and um, here i'd like to bring in a um, some work i did with some um, other folks uh, called work as a masculinity contest. Sometimes work, and this is very true in the high levels of virtually, virtually every industry, which are all very, 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 very heavily white male. Um, the work is a masculinity contest where you go to work every day and you, there's only, um, it's kind of a dog eat dog world and you have to have total dedication and only one person can be a winner and everybody else is a loser. Who does this remind you of? Could it be a recent president? Um, he was a, a, cl a classic example of seeing everything as a masculinity contest. And if work is a masculinity contest where how big yours is, we're talking about um, profits last year, unless we aren't, uh, is that the work is a masculinity contest piece is part of what keeps everything rigidly in place. That in some ways is more influential than the desire to make profits. I do wonder, you know, it's interesting listening to this, the arc of the conversation because so much of what's written and discussed about work today, and certainly as part of the public discussion about work and whatever constitutes a post-pandemic, is about work of people who are higher skilled in offices, can remote work, how's that going to change? How's the office going to change? Is it going to be a hybrid culture? I mean, there's no such thing as, as you both pointed out, as a, a hybrid culture in an Amazon warehouse, right? That's a, a complete oxymoron. And yet the discussion will likely continue to be focused largely on the how can people work in a hybrid, remote, high-tech fashion? I mean, do you see any... And, and largely because that's the people writing about it are of that universe, right? They're not, most people writing and speaking about these things are of that world. But there are a lot of relative, there are a lot of non-elite jobs that are not like being in an Amazon warehouse, um, that are not uh, on-site jobs by their nature. Um, they're just on-site by tradition. They're, they're receptionist the um the administrate that administrative assistant there are huge numbers of what are commonly called pink collar jobs that can be remote so the question is will those people be summarily ordered back to work and the elites be given anywhere jobs that is a separate issue from the grocery worker, but it's also a very important low-wage and middle-class issue that we're facing right this second. And in a global context, can you create the infrastructure for more people to work remote like that? I mean, just thinking about Greece, 
uh, there was not this whole working from home thing during the pandemic. Most of the workforce went to work because the internet here is not set up to be able to handle that. Most kids were going to school because guess what? The whole handing out iPads to as many kids as possible thing was never going to fly here. They did, you know, there was some of it. Um, but you know, it's just something to keep in mind too, is, is what Joan is saying about in a global context as well, how many people could be pulled into that, that workforce. Part of it's the reorienting, right? Like how much of this do we actually want to disaggregate? And the workplace can be incredibly flawed, but is it a healthy thing also that the remote aspect of it, you know, decouples or deconstructs? And then the whole healthcare part, not healthcare, healthcare, yes, but childcare and and early childcare and education in particular, which is why you do have a drive in the United States and a renewed drive in places like the UK and the fact that you have the Tory party, which spent most of the past 40 years trying to deconstruct that aspect of the state, doubling down on it now, I mean, partly to compensate for Brexit, but also because there's a massive demand and it's a way engendering support that they didn't have. Um, Literally engendering. I mean, the idea that we're talking about a care infrastructure um, we finally recognize that just as people cannot get to work without roads and bridges, people cannot get to work without childcare and elder care. They just literally can't show up. That's been a reality for decades. Um, but suddenly during the pandemic, we had the glimpse where the public saw it. The question is, um, are we going to lose touch with it again? We will see. And We'll see in a few months, we'll see in a few years, whether or not these germinating ideas, which are pretty potent in the the scale that's being proposed, end up happening. Um, It may be a two step forward, one step back, it may be one step forward, two steps back, I guess we'll have to see. But the fact that it is so present in the public conversation and in political conversation now, I take as a much more positive sign than not. As someone who waited 40 years for it. And, and of course, there's also, I mean, there's also a, a, a good chunk of people who don't yet need care. Um, they are going into the workforce for the first time, and I'm not sure how they feel about the hybrid work, right? They, they want to have a sense of belonging. They want to be mentored by people. They want to have those conversations at the water cooler. I mean, and, and when you're new and you're young and you're entering this space, perhaps you value that hybrid less. Um, so, so, so perhaps as, as we think about the future, we need a more customized approach and, 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 and respect people's choices and create workplaces that enable those choices. Final question for the two of you. Not final as in this conversation is by any means exhausted, but final as in our time is about to be exhausted. Do you feel in the cup half full, cup half empty way that as much as the pandemic was a social, epidemiological, healthcare disaster, that it has also cracked open some of the things you, Joan, have been talking about for years and Zainab, you've been looking at? Is this, you know, is this an opening that we're going to look back at as um, painfully constructive or is that I hope too so. Optimistic? I mean, I... I, I judge it by the number of companies that have reached out to us recently, 
by the number of investors who are reaching out from private equity to activist hedge funds thinking about um, work and, and in, a, in a constructive way. I, I, I see customers paying perhaps a little bit more attention because they saw the working conditions inside some fulfillment centers, meatpacking um, areas. So, so I see a lot more awareness about the issues and that gives me hope for the future. Uh, I'm always hopeful. Uh, it's too easy to be pessimistic. Being hopeful takes energy, intelligence, and concentration. I try to keep myself there. That is so well put. Otherwise, why would we go to work, John? Yeah, exactly. Right. Otherwise, what we're doing is truly, yes. truly futile. <laughs> so thank you both for the conversation today. Thanks, all. Thank you. So that lived up to my expectations. How about you? That went above and beyond my expectations. Um, I, you know, almost jumped out of my seat when Joan started talking about work as a white masculinity contest. I had never heard it described that way before. Um, rang true for me. There was a really good piece by Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute talking about this exactly, that the nature of work and the nature of manufacturing in particular is in its own way a focus because it is largely about working class men and has left to the side this vast realm of incredibly disruptive and challenging work that is largely done by women. So that was an important highlight. I do think this whole question of how the workplace is going to change, if at all, is, is a fascinating one because we've lived through a period where everybody was declaiming the change of everything. And one thing that was great for me about that conversation was, yeah, things change but rarely are they changing as radically or completely as people in a moment of intense change think they are. And we've come out of one and everybody was saying the world will never be the same. I think in both a good way and a sobering way, this conversation reminds us that the world wasn't changing nearly as much as some people thought, even in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, and it's not likely to become a radical, brave new world in the years now just because the pandemic's over. Yeah, perhaps not. I mean, I do think there's a lot of energy around not wanting to go back to business as usual. You know, they, they did tell me that the story that I shared about my friend is unusual, which I, I'm sure is true, but I, I do see that, that energy being there. Um, and, you know, something that another one of our network members said recently, uh, Adam Grant, is that he, he's, he thinks that the CEOs who are demanding that people return to work and you know here we're talking again about the zoom class uh that they may find themselves going the way of the dinosaurs soon uh that this demand for greater flexibility and to you know tag in with what zamps works about for higher quality jobs for better quality jobs i think overall we're gonna we're gonna head the right way even if it's like you said not gonna be like we turn the switch and suddenly we're in a brave new post-pandemic world. So here's to the two steps forward, one step back. I mean, granted, it'd be great if it was just two steps forward, but in the in the real world of human existence, the one step back is almost inevitable. And as long as it's one step and not two steps and that we're not treading water, I think we can live with uh, some of the mystery and complications of that change so long as it's in a forward momentum. Anyway, this has been another, I think, illuminating conversation uh, amongst many that we will keep having. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of What Could Go Right and also 
tuning in to all the work that's being done as part of the Progress Network by all the people who are involved in it. The entire thrust of which is to create that world that we want to inhabit and not the world that we fear that we might. So for me, for Zachary Carabell, thank you very much. Emma, thank you as usual. And we will continue these anon. Thank you, Zachary. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Varvalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Poglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.